The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. I'd like you to take your Bibles now, if you would, and open them to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 27. Today we begin the next to the last chapter of Matthew that will bring us closer to the cross and then to the resurrection of our Lord. I was thinking just a minute ago, as I was sitting here uh, waiting for the sermon, what am I going to do when we finish Matthew? Uh, I don't know. I, I, I've been thinking about closing up the church and selling the building. Uh, it's been such a long time. I don't know if there's anything else in the Bible except Matthew, it seems like. But it's taken a while, but the study, I think, is good for us, and we're getting closer and closer to the end. And it's not often that I would begin a message uh, with the conclusion, but I think it's necessary for me to tell you the conclusion of this terrible story that's found in, these, in this particular passage so that you might clearly understand who is affected most by what's written here in these first ten verses. Now, the passage is the awful conclusion of the life of Judas, the one who betrayed our Lord. This is the death of a man who was an insider. It's the demise of a man who had all the advantages of easy access to the gospel. This was a man that was close enough to salvation that he could actually reach out and touch it, but he preferred the things of this world more than he did eternal life in Christ. What we have here is actually the story of a church member. It's one who is counted among the disciples of Christ, but one who's a believer in name only, not having truly believed the gospel. Um, and his story is actually the end game for all pretenders. The destiny for a person who doesn't know Christ, even one who sits in the church and listens to the message, maybe a member of the church, the destiny for every person is the same who doesn't know Christ. Death brings no relief. People are often tormented by the different things that happen in their lives, the troubles that they have, but death brings no relief for them, and they find themselves plunged in the eternal flames of a lake of fire. The end result of unbelief is to hear the Lord say at the last day, at the judgment, depart from me ye cursed into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And I know those are very frightening words. Words that aren't spoken from much pul many pulpits today. But those are the words of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the one that Judas betrayed. He said a day is going to come if you don't know me that he will say depart from me into everlasting fire. Now the context of those particular words in Matthew chapter 7, the context is that they're not spoken to outsiders. But rather they're spoken to people who claim Christianity, but their hearts have never been converted to Christ. So I'm telling you the story of Judas' death today. This, this, is, not, this is not for people that are outside of the church. Oh, there, there are people outside that can benefit from the story for sure. But the main thrust of the teaching that we have here is about those who are fellowshipping with God's people, and yet they are pretenders, they are unbelief, and only pretenders to a true relationship with the Lord. Now, it's no mystery why Paul should write 
these words in 2 Corinthians 13 verse 5. He said, examine yourselves whether you be in the faith. Prove your own selves. Know ye not your own selves how that Jesus Christ is in you except ye be reprobates? And Paul wrote that to the church at Corinth. People who were members of that church and there were many of them that were still living in sin demonstrating that they didn't actually know the Lord. Now I'd like for us to go to our text and this is a most interesting place in Scripture. Most of us have read it plenty of times. But we probably never really stop to consider how that this passage actually speaks more about the, the matchless character of Jesus Christ than it does the miserable character of this man named Judas. Now if you'd stand with me again for the reading of God's Word. Matthew chapter 27, beginning at verse number 1. When the morning was come, all the chief priests and elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And when they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. Then Judas, which had betrayed him, when he saw that he was condemned, repented himself and brought again the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned in that I have betrayed the innocent blood. And they said, What is that to us? See thou to that. And he cast down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. And the chief priest took the silver pieces and said, It is not lawful for to put them into the treasury, because it is the price of blood. And they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field to bury strangers in. Wherefore, that field was called the field of blood unto this day. Then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremy the prophet, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him that was valued, whom they of the children of Israel did value, and gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord appointed me. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your word, and Lord, open up the text to us today. Help us to understand clearly what you'd have for us. Speak to us by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. As I was studying for this message, I, I came across some very interesting insights to the life and character of this man, Judas Iscariot. Now, what I have to say this morning about him may, may shake your foundation a little bit because it's probably not going to be at all what you think that Judas was like. His name, Judas Iscariot, that is a very repulsive name and mostly because of the deed that's attached to it. And most of us think that Judas was, must have been a really smarmy type of fellow, one that really uh, we wouldn't care very much to be around. And we think of Judas, we think of what he did, and we think of him as a dirty outcast who was one who hung around the fringes of the meetings of the disciples, that he wasn't really integrated into the group. He wasn't like the rest, and so he was sort of like the family member that nobody wants to talk about and uh, would like to stick off in another place somewhere because he has all these little personality quirks that make him unpleasant to be around. But it's actually very unlikely that Judas was like that at all. In fact, it's more likely that of all the disciples that Judas would have been the best educated of them, the most socially refined that was in this group. And the consensus of Bible scholars is that Judas was the only Judean among all of the disciples. And because he was of Judean, that would have given him 
many more advantages for education and, and culture. Uh, he was from around Jerusalem, and so Jerusalem is the place of learning. It's the seat of learning for the Jews. That's the place of power. That is the place of government. It's the place of Jewish law, the place of the temple. It's the place where most of the learned Jewish rabbis lived. And you remember that Paul, who was from the city of Tarsus in Cilicia, came to Jerusalem where he sat at the feet of one of the most famous rabbis of that time, the Rabbi Gamaliel. And he was taught all about the Word of God. And it's hardly imaginable that Paul would have chosen to go to Galilee to receive his education. Now, Judas was raised in that kind of environment. He, he grew up in the culture of Judea rather than Galilee, where all the other disciples lived. And there really wasn't much respect for these southerners in Judea, for the northerners that were from Galilee. Uh, people from the south were refined but those from Galilee were unrefined, they were rough around the edges. And so whenever they came to Jerusalem, they were, they were the Beverly hillbillies uh, of, of Israel. And it may well be that the disciples looked up to Judas because of that refinement. Now, he was actually influential among the disciples. He was trusted enough that he became the treasurer of the group. As I've said before, it kind of leaves us wondering about church treasurers. Or are they the most upstanding of all the people or are they not to be trusted? And in this case, I think Judas fit both those extremes. Now his influence is seen in the incident at the beginning of chapter 26 when Mary of Bethany came and anointed Jesus with that precious ointment. You remember that? And when, when she did, there was a protest, there was a howl that went up from the, from the disciples, and they said, well, that money could have been sold, and all that money could have been given to the poor. Now, we learn from John chapter 12 that it was Judas who was actually leading that protest, that he's the one that put it into the minds of the disciples, this shouldn't have been done, we should take that money and give it to the poor. And so the other disciples very quickly acceded to the opinion of Judas. So who is Judas? Well, he was influential. He's the type that comes to the church and you don't want to shove him out of the way. You don't want to put him into a back room where the good members of the church won't see him and not be influenced by his bad behavior. Oh, Judas was the type of church member that you would want to have sitting in one of these chairs up here in the front. He's eye candy for the church. He's sophisticated. He's an intelligent person. He's the one that actually lends legitimacy to this whole group. And, and uh, he doesn't speak the hokey dialect of the Galileans. He speaks the language of sophistication. He's prim. He's proper. He is grammatically correct. And when you think of it that way, Judas is the one who actually becomes the person who elevates this group. He's the one who is the redeeming figure of this otherwise very rowdy band of uneducated Galileans. Well, I think we see two references to the ignorance of the rest of the disciples. One is a very subtle rest, uh, reference, the other is more direct. Um, when the Holy Spirit fell, this is the subtle reference, when the Holy Spirit fell, the disciples, you remember, began to speak in foreign languages. That's in Acts chapter 2. And there it says, And they were all amazed and marveled, saying one to another, Behold, are not all these which speak Galileans? And how hear we every man in our own tongue wherein we were born? 
Now, we're not sure what the greater miracle here was. Was it the miraculous ability to speak in tongues and other foreign languages? Or was it that these ignorant Galileans could speak at all? Because that's what they are. They can't speak their own language, much less that of foreigners. Then the other more direct reference is in Acts 4.13 where it says, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled and they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. Now the really sad part of this is that Judas could have been the most influential witness in Jerusalem. He's the one out of all the group that understood people in Judea much better I mean, the others are from Galilee. He understands the thinking of people that are in Judea. He's the most likely that could help them to accept the differences between Jesus and the other disciples and them. But that's not what Judas turned out to be. But rather, he turned out to be the bane of this band who committed the worst treachery that the world has ever seen. Now, there are some interesting theories proposed for the reasons that Judas betrayed Christ. And those reasons actually elevate him in the mind of some, and they offer excuses for what he did. Now, some think that Judas was a very serious, pensive type, and he had a very good idea how to get Jesus to actually move on the promise that he had made that there's going to be a kingdom. Now, he misunderstood the promise, of course, but he had this good idea about how he could get Jesus to move on that, prom on that uh, promise, and the idea that he had would bring him into prominence in the kingdom and he would become wealthy as a result. Now we're going to talk about that a little bit later and decide if that's true. But first of all, what we need to do is to look at the beginning of this chapter where Matthew describes the morning trial of Jesus before the Jewish Sanhedrin. And this is important to our story at this point because this is really the instigator of Judas' actions in verse number 3. When this happened, Judas said like something like this, Oh no, what have I done? Now first, then there's verifying the verdict. In verse number 1 we read, When the morning was come, all the chief priests and elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. Now last week we had the interlude of Peter's denials in chapter 26, at the end of chapter 26. But you remember what's going on while Peter was denying Christ, that there was a trial that was in progress, that Jesus had been brought before Annas, and failing to secure a charge against him there, he was then ushered over to Caiaphas, who was the high priest at that time. And Caiaphas pronounced Jesus guilty of blasphemy, and thus Jesus had gone through two phases of trial. Now, the ver guilty verdict was pronounced at a nighttime meeting of the council, and that was illegal. And so to lend an air of legitimacy to the entire proceedings, they met very early the next morning with a full court of the Jewish Sanhedrin and there to put the rubber stamp of approval upon the verdict that was passed that night. Now, the night trial was a, a very egregious violation of justice because it was clandestine. It was a rush to judgment. And, the, and this particular meeting in the morning was not the time to rehash everything that had happened that night, but again, it's to put a rubber stamp on a verdict that's already been decided. Now, what we have here is cloak and dagger stuff. It started with the illegal arrest of Jesus in the garden, then it carried on throughout that night with various outrageous miscarriages of justice. 
And as badly as the Jews would have liked to have had everything done and over with in that nighttime meeting, they knew that it wasn't going to pass muster. And so they had the morning meeting to put the approval on what was done. And all of this was done in great haste before the commencement of Passover. It needed to be done. It needed to be over with so they could go about their worship and know that Jesus had been dealt with. And that was also a violation because trials like this were not supposed to happen this close to a feast day. Uh, trials like this were to be given extra time to consider should they really execute a person. So there's no time for proper deliberations. There's no extra days that are allowed for execution. Here we find the Jews in hurry-up mode. They're trying to get Jesus to the cross and then get him down from the cross before Passover was to be eaten that night. Now, little did they know that all, of that's, all that's happening here is an act of divine providence because what God was doing was making sure also that Jesus was going to get to the cross at the exact time that the Passover lambs were killed. Jesus is the real Passover lamb. He needed to be killed at exactly the right time. As the Apostle Paul said, for even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Now what the Jews also didn't know is that the peace that they had in their mind obtained by condemning Jesus was going to be interrupted very quickly by Judas who would come and return the money. He would bring back the blood money that they had paid them for the betrayal. Now if you look at verse number 2, they verified the verdict and they took Jesus and bound him to, and took him to Pilate uh, the Jewish court pronounced him guilty of blasphemy. That was punishable by death under the Jewish law, but carried no weight under Roman law. So the Jews couldn't put him to death. That's a right reserved to the Romans. So another charge had to be made that would cause the Romans to put him to death. So they bound him, and they took him to Pilate. And no doubt, the binding and the beating that had been done to Jesus would help to influence Pilate that surely... Jesus was a criminal. Now at this point, after some time after the verdict was verified, Judas became aroused as to what he had done. When that verdict of death came in, it really hit him hard that they were actually going to take Jesus and crucify him. Now Judas then was struck down with a, with a convicting conscience He'd done this terrible deed, and his conscience moved him to his next action. Now, secondly, we look at the insistence of innocence. Verse number 3, Then Judas, which had betrayed him, when he saw that he was condemned, repented himself and brought again the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned in that I have betrayed the innocent blood. Now, if I might re return for a moment to the speculation of what might have been going on when, in Judas' mind when he determined to betray Christ, there are some who say that Judas never thought that he would be put to death. That Judas never thought that his actions would be the cause of condemnation. But rather he thought that when Jesus got to trial, that he would be vindicated there, and the, and the kingdom plans would proceed, he would have the money, and nobody would get hurt. And there are many, many good Bible expositors who hold that opinion. But to me, it seems that the actions of Judas are much more sinister than that. I believe that 
Judas was driven by hatred and by disillusionment. So he plotted and he schemed. He really didn't care what happened to Jesus. Jesus was the means to his end. And that was to make some money off of this deal of Jesus claiming to be the Messiah. And he wanted more than what he was able to steal from the disciples from their treasury. So he planned the betrayal in order to make some money. And in this, this ruthless society, he didn't care at all what happened to Jesus. But let's suppose for a moment that others are right and that Judas really thought that Jesus would be vindicated and nobody's the worse for wear. Judas was in for a very rude awakening. Now first, he, he paid nothing. He was paid nothing like he was expected to be paid. They paid him a pittance for the betrayal of Jesus, just a paltry sum, and, and that wasn't really good to him anyway, so it didn't make a whole lot of difference whether he returned the money or not. And then secondly, if he assumed that re the religious leaders were fair and that they were just, he was very sadly mistaken. And so when things went badly and went against his expectations, he thought that if he returned the money and became a witness to Jesus' innocence, that it would help. And he hoped that when he came before the religious leaders, that they would be more righteous than he. They would see the error that's been made, they would correct it, and Jesus would be set free. Oh, but little did he know how wicked that these leaders were, what was really in their heart, because they weren't interested in any kind of justice. And if anything, these are men that are worse than Judas, because they had the power to make this thing right. But they didn't do it. So Judas returned the money, and he said, he's innocent. In effect, he says, I have taken your money to betray an innocent man. And that was a very, very serious issue, according to the Old Testament law, Deuteronomy 27, 25, which says, Cursed be he that taketh reward to slay an innocent person. And all the people shall say, Amen. Now, would you take for a minute to consider, who would have been the best person to testify against Jesus. I mean, if the judges wanted somebody that was sympathetic to their cause, then why didn't they call Judas to testify against him? Well, Judas had already proved his mettle. He's a lying witness. He was unscrupulous in the betrayal. So why didn't they go to Judas? Because Judas heard not only the public teachings of Jesus, as others had, but, Jesus, but Judas was also there in private moments. He heard things that Jesus said in private that others didn't hear. And I assume that you know that people are very often different in private than they are in public. That they say and they do things in private that they won't say in public. So why not Judas? Why, why, why who, Judas, who, who surely would be able to find something, just one thing, anything, that would give him a just cause for betraying Christ? Why not call Judas because surely he knows something about Jesus? And I'm sure that those very things crossed Judas' mind when he returned the money. To justify the actions of what he had done, the now tortured Judas would have done this. He would have racked his brain for anything that he could think of. Just one small thing. Just give me some excuse that makes it all right for me to betray Jesus. Just give me something. And that would give him comfort that he had done the right thing. But Judas couldn't find anything. And if you want to know why the story of Judas is put here, you can pin it on this. That this is vital testimony of one who had every reason to find a reason why Jesus would be guilty. 
and he couldn't. There was no fault that is ever found in him. In, in these last few days, over and over again, Jesus has testified to be perfectly sinless. False witnesses had to be hired at trial because they couldn't find anything. He was innocent. Judas gave testimony of his innocence. Pilate later says, I find no fault in him. A thief that's crucified next to him says, there's no reason why you should be here. And then a Roman centurion said, truly, this was the Son of God. The verdict is verified in life and death that Jesus was innocent. He's the perfect, sinless Son of God, the one who is qualified to be our Savior. The one who knew no sin became sin for us. And have you ever thought about this, that that sinless that sinless life of Jesus Christ is a tremendous testimony to the virgin birth. That he was actually born of a virgin, that he had no sin nature. Never has a person ever been born that does not sin. Only Jesus. Only Jesus was never guilty of sin. Only Jesus lived a life of perfect innocence. Can you imagine how hard that that would be? Especially coming down to the end of life. Forget about what happened in the rest of his life. But coming down to the end of, the li of his life, he's mocked, he's spat upon, he's beaten finally. They're going to take him to the cross. They'll nail his hands and feet there. And Jesus never had a wicked thought in his mind. How is that even possible? Well, it can't be possible. Unless Jesus, Jesus was sinless, the sinless Son of God, born of the Holy Spirit. So Judas could have given testimony at the trial. Uh, he knew him best of all. But they never called Judas. And I think that Judas never came forward and say, I'll testify for you because his conscience wouldn't let him. If Judas had showed up to witness at the trial, we would have seen this bag of money much sooner than we see it here. Now, I, w I want you to notice something else. That Judas pushed the envelope of sin. Now, he had, he had his little plot, he had his little scheme, and so maybe he thought that what he could do was that he could dabble in sin just a little bit. Uh, he got in his mind that Jesus is going to be set free eventually at trial. So he figures, I can dabble into sin a little bit, I'll get my hands on the money, and it's never going to go this far. But this is what sin always does. You can't dip your toe into sin without drowning in it. As the Word of God says, you can't take fire into your bosom and your clothes not be burned. Now some of you, you will willfully let yourself be dragged into sin just waiting for it and you're going to find out that sin will take you places you never thought that you would go. We have biblical examples of it. Judas, of course, that we've just read about, but also David. David had this little sin in his mind of numbering the people. And David thought, that's not going to do any harm. Even though his captain, Joab, warned him against it. So that's a bad thing to do, David. Yet David was prideful and he wanted to count the numbers of his army. He wanted to show how great David is. And so David let the senses go through and they counted the numbers of people in Israel. And what happened? Because of that little sin of disobeying God, 70,000 of David's people were killed by an angel of the Lord. Then we see David in deep trouble again when he had that little sin of the lust of his eyes. He saw Bathsheba taking a bath and he had her brought to him. 
And that one little look, that one little bit of lust, led David into adultery and murder. David never thought that a little sin would take him where it did. Well, the Bible tells us that when sin is conceived, it brings forth death. For Judas, it brought his own death, and then it also brought the death of the only perfect man that ever lived. Now, there's a point to that. Sin is very serious. You can't get mixed up in sin and not be harmed by it. Uh, your children can watch you take a drink, and they're going to pick up that nasty habit, and someday they might, that might kill them. Have you ever noticed that when you talk to teenagers that one of the justifications that they have for smoking marijuana and taking other drugs is because you do it, you drink alcohol, so it's all right if I do this. And that what this tells us is that one sin becomes justification for another. Sin begets sin. There's no stopping place with it. Oh, we see it in our society every day, don't we? We see what... We've allowed one sin and mushrooms into all different sorts of sins. There's no stopping place. When you go into sin, there's no telling how deep you're going to go. So the Bible warns against it. It tells us to put as much distance between sin and you as you can. Because spiritual death is always the result. Now we take a look at Adam. Adam sinned and spiritual death passed to all men. Physical death passed to all men. What happened with Adam's very first son? His son was a murderer. Do you think that this is interesting that when Cain was born, that his mother Eve said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. You know what that means? It means that Eve claimed the promise of Genesis 3.15 in her firstborn son. But what she didn't take into account is that Cain was born with a sinful nature. And that person in Genesis 3.15 would not have a sinful nature. And so what did Cain do? He murdered his brother Abel. Judah's sin ended in murder. The murder of the sinless son of God and then self-murder. It's a serious mistake to underestimate sin. Now this much we know about Jesus. There was no sin. He was innocent. No charge of wrongdoing sticks to him. And it's interesting that the character of Jesus has withstood scrutiny for 2,000 years. I I've talked to many people that are unsaved, and probably so of you. And, I and this is a question that I always ask people, almost all the time when I'm witnessing to them. I ask them, do you believe that Jesus told the truth? And even unsaved people will say, yes. Nobody ever says that Jesus didn't tell the truth. They don't accuse him of lying. Truth is always the barometer of innocence. You can lie with your mouth. You can lie with your actions. You can lie by beguiling. You can lie with deception. Truth will never allow you to do any of that. And it's great that as a Christian you have truth on your side because everybody believes that Jesus told the truth and that's a perfect lead-in for you to take them to the Bible to show them the truth that Jesus told. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me, which is a perfect antidote for the doctrine that says all paths lead to God. So you can never underestimate the effects of sin. You can't overestimate the value of truthfulness. We claim a saving gospel for this one reason only. Jesus told the truth. 
Now, I want to go on and mention one other observation, and, and I'm not going to finish today because there's too much to learn here from the passage. Number three is remorse, not repentance. Then Judas, which had betrayed him, when he saw that he was condemned, repented himself and brought again the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned in that I have betrayed the innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? See thou to that. I know that some of you are not going to like what I'm going to say next. All of you know that I love the King James Version. I don't preach from any other version. I think it's the best translation in English of the preserved manuscripts of Scripture. But I don't worship the King James. It's a translation, and there are some words that can be better translated. And there's a lot of confusion about verse number 3 because the King James translators made an unfortunate translation when they said that Judas repented. Now, you know that's a word that's used a lot in Scripture. You see it a lot of times. John the Baptist talked about repentance, and, and Jesus talked about it. You must repent, and Peter talked of repentance, and Paul also preached it. The Bible says that God grants repentance, and so we know that repentance is an act of God. Whenever somebody repents of sin, that's because of God. And repentance of, from all sin is necessary for anyone to be saved. So do you understand this? There is nobody who is saved without repentance. And here it says that Judas repented. And that's an unfortunate translation because the Greek word that's used here is not the same word as the one that John the Baptist used when he talked about repenting of your sins. And it's not the same word that Jesus used nor the same word that Paul and Peter used when they talked about repenting from sin. The word that they used is the word metanoia. And it means to change your mind about God and sin and self. In 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10, it says, For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. Now that kind of repentance, as mentioned there, is godly sorrow. It always leads a person to change a behavior. That's what we call evangelical repentance. It's the kind of repentance that's necessary for conversion to Christ. But the word that we find in Matthew 27, 3 is not that word. In the King James, it still uses the word repent, but the word here is actually the Greek word metomelomai, or metomelomai, and it means regret. It's not godly sorrow. That is, this is not evangelical repentance that leads to a change of behavior, and that's seen in Judah's next action, that he hanged himself rather than turning to God. So we're not talking here about evangelical repentance. This is the sting of a guilty conscience and nothing more. This is guilt weighed down until it just becomes unbearable for a person. A person becomes miserable under this because of this. And, and it comes out of the conscience, just simply the conscience. Now all of us have a conscience, but our conscience isn't perfect. The conscience was affected by the fall of Adam, but nonetheless, all of us have conscience. Now, if there wasn't a conscience in us, none of us would be safe leaving the house to go to work. Why? Because man is self-interested. We put our interest above everything else. And sometimes our self-interest gets out of hand, and the self-interest becomes unreasonable. I remember one time near my house in Kentucky... I was on a four-lane highway that was ready to merge into two lanes. 
And I was in one lane, there was a car beside me in the other lane, and we both saw this single lane that was coming up, and both of us determined that we were going to get there first. So I sped up, and the other guy sped up, and I sped up, and he sped up. I pushed harder, he pushed harder, till finally we're barreling down towards this single lane, and we ran out of room. And so he forced me over onto the shoulder of the road. So I did the reasonable thing. I fell in behind him and followed him at 65 miles an hour on his bumper. And when we came to the next light, I was mad. And so he stopped at the light and I pulled up beside him on the shoulder of the road and there was this old guy in this car with white hair and, and his skinny little senior citizen wife was sitting beside him and I blasted him with a tirade of verbal abuse. Now don't be too alarmed by that because I'm not very good at verbal abuse. I don't cuss and I never did. And so my verbal abuse is a little bit innocuous. I, I need some of, needed some of you there for this. So I, I couldn't really do it. But I had this desire to be first. And, and that played on my, my thinking. And it caused me to risk the lives of me and my family. Now, you, you, you probably guessed I don't do that anymore. I stopped sinning a long time ago. And so uh, every, every ride that I take now is peaceful. And my driving record proves that. But your conscience holds you in check with a lot of that stuff. Um, I could have gotten out of the car and I could have beat that old guy to death. That is, if his skinny wife didn't help him, that might have been a challenge. But I, but I could have. But your conscience doesn't let you do those things, does it? Your conscience is not going to make you a Christian, but it's not going to let you do these kinds of things. And you mothers that are home with little children, you understand exactly what I mean. So that's what hit Judas. It was conscience. He knew that he'd done his worst by betraying the Lord, that he was innocent. And so, this is guilt on Judas, pure guilt. We're not talking about evangelical repentance. This is the kind of guilt that just gnaws at you and you don't have any relief from it. Now, we know that it's not repentance, true evangelical repentance, because Jesus was very close by. All that he needed to do was just go and bow before Jesus and tell him, I'm sorry for what I did. Now, if he could have just looked at Jesus, not even talked to him, if he could have looked at him with that attitude of repentance, Jesus would have known that because he knows what's in the heart. He reads human hearts, so the words don't even have to be spoken. But Judas never went. And Jesus never received that look from him. This is what you do with real repentance. If you want to be saved and forgiven of your sins, what you have to do is you have to go to Jesus and admit what you've done. And you have to say to him, I betrayed your innocent blood. I have sinned against you, Lord. Forgive me and cleanse me of my sin. And Jesus would have done that. Jesus never refuses a repentant sinner. But Judas never did that. Instead, he went to the chief priest and told them that he was sorry. Now, next time when we come back to this in a couple of weeks, we're going to look at their reaction to what he said. But this is just guilt. He tried to make up from it, for it by giving back the money, not going to Jesus. Well, there's another fellow in Scripture that repented in the same way. Do you remember how many times that Pharaoh said to Moses, I've sinned, I'm sorry, but I've sinned? But he did, he did that over and over. But what Pharaoh didn't do, he never bowed his knee before God 
and said, I have sinned. You remember he kept telling Moses, you go to God, you entreat God for me. But Pharaoh never bowed down to the one true God and said, I've sinned against you, Lord. And I'm telling you something, that kind of repentance doesn't work. It might soothe your conscience a little bit, and you feel a little bit better because of it, but that sin that never re- or repentance that never recognizes God, that, that you have offended God, that's just not going to work in God's courtroom. Now, Judas was very remorseful. He was wrestling internally with this, and so he was like Pharaoh. And then he sinned again by usurping God's authority. He solved the guilt problem he fought by taking himself out. And that was defiance against the sovereign God because the sovereign God is the only one who has the right to life and death. And the euthanasia enthusiasts need to learn that it's a serious sin to step into God's territory. Remorse will get you nowhere. You can't get rid of guilt with remorse. You have to go to God like David did and say, against thee, against thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. And let me tell you something about God. God specializes in removing guilt. All of us have this problem of guilt and God specializes in removing it. When you repent of your sin and you trust Christ, he removes guilt. And that is what we call the doctrine of justification. That's what it is. It's the removal of guilt so that we stand before God uncondemned. But Judas wasn't justified. Judas wasn't saved. Returning the money did not justify the actions. He chose the wrong way to deal with guilt. He hanged himself. Now I have to close the message and there's a lot more to say. This story gets wrapped into a lot of Old Testament scripture that I want to share with you. But let me leave you with this point. The guilt was too great for Judas. He, he hated himself and that guilt gouged him. Until he couldn't stand it any longer. He wanted to be free from it. And his solution was to lean on himself and to take matters into his own hands rather than go to God. So what did he do? Well, he jumped from the frying pan into the fire because he exchanged his temporary mental torment for eternal, physical, and spiritual torment in the fires of hell. And Judas is there today because he made the wrong choice. He thought he could solve the problem by ending his life. Little did he think that man was built for eternity. Man was made for eternity. The soul lives on. And I'm telling you something, folks. A tortured soul here, if that's what you're living with, a tortured soul here is a tortured soul in eternity. It doesn't change. So what do you do? You go to Jesus. You end the conflict in your heart by trusting Jesus. You know, people believe that eternal life begins when you die. For a Christian, eternal life begins right now. When you trust Christ, the Bible says that you are, you pass from death to life. Spiritual death is gone. Eternal life begins at the moment that you trust Christ. And so when a Christian lives this, leaves this life, all that he actually does is just transition into the perfect life of heaven. So what I'm trying to tell you today is that you can begin eternal life today if you make the right choice. I don't know. There may be somebody here who's a Judas. There may be a church member here that's a Judas. 
Oh, you're just pretending Christianity. You go through the motions of it, but you don't really know Christ. And the thrust of this story is to tell us not to be found a foe when you pretended to be a friend. In that torture, in the torture of pretending and truly trust Christ today. Let's pray. Father, we come to you and we recognize that we are sinners against you. For those of us that have trusted you as Savior, repented of our sins and put our faith in you, we thank you for the pardon of sin. The guilt has been taken away from us and we know, we know that we're going to be in heaven when we leave this life. But there may be someone here who doesn't have that confidence. They have been pretending. They come to church or they may do things that Christians do and they try to act the Christian life. But they haven't really received you as Savior. I pray, Lord, there's not a Judas here. There's not someone who's actually betraying the Lord in their everyday life and just pretending that they know you. Speak to some soul today, Lord. Change, change them. May they truly repent of their sins and trust you as Savior. And Lord, we'll just give you the praise for that. Speak to someone's heart today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.